Welcome to the Radical Truth Podcast. I am your host, Glenn Meldrum, and this podcast is brought to you by In His Presence Ministries. Visit us on the web at www.ihpministry.com. Before we get started with this lesson, I need to take care of some business. In case you didn't know, Google Podcasts is shutting down in April and transferring everything to YouTube Music. My podcast in video format is on YouTube under my name. My podcast will still be posted on my website and will be distributed through Spotify, who is now my podcast hosting service. If everything goes as planned, all the podcast platforms that have been posting my weekly Bible teaching will either get the podcast from my website or through Spotify. It also seems that YouTube Music will be hosting my podcast under the name of The Radical Truth. The only ones who will be affected are those who use Google Podcasts, since it will be closing down. My recommendation is that you use another podcast platform, such as iTunes, Spotify, Blueberry, or Podbean, to subscribe to my podcast. There are many apps out there you can use to listen and subscribe to the Radical Truth Podcast. I'm sorry if this is an inconvenience for you, but it's out of my control. I thought it was important to let everyone know what's going on, and I will keep you informed if there are any more changes. If you have any problems with getting the podcast, please email or text me as soon as possible so I can get any of the glitches worked out. Thanks for listening, and make sure you tell others about this podcast. We finished studying in our last lesson a historical account of how the Lord began saving some Gentiles, who are non-Jews, and it's a wonderful testimony of the work of the Holy Spirit. The salvation of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and those in his house also includes the important subject of the baptism in the Holy Spirit that was central to the event. I was thinking on this portion of Scripture while editing the audio file of the last lesson. Speaking in tongues was the evidence the Lord used to prove that Cornelius and his household were truly born again and baptized in the Holy Spirit. The importance of this event can't be overstated because its implications are far-reaching. Peter used the initial evidence of the Spirit baptism, which is speaking in other tongues, as his principal defense against the accusations that were brought against him over the salvation of some Gentiles. He testified before the believers in Jerusalem, and they all accepted the evidence that speaking in tongues was legitimate proof that salvation had come to those Gentiles without their having first to convert to Judaism. In our last lesson, I clarified how speaking in tongues isn't the standard by which we are to determine if people are saved. But in the case with Cornelius, it was absolutely necessary. The Lord was opening the door of salvation to the Gentiles, and the evidence of this had to be thoroughly convincing. Things are very different today than it was back then. In our culture, People attack Pentecostals because they speak in other tongues, while those early saints took tongues as an evidence of salvation and the spirit baptism. These modern-day anti-Pentecostals make the bogus claim that those who speak in tongues aren't saved, while those early saints knew that they were full of the Holy Spirit. Without a legitimate verse to support their doctrine, anti-Pentecostals assert that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of speaking in tongues, and miracles cease with the death of the apostles. Yet to hold to such an opinion is 100% contrary to what Peter and the early church believed, taught, and did. This is significant. Those early saints clearly acknowledged that Cornelius and his household were genuinely saved, and the evidence which proved their salvation was that they spoke in other tongues. 
Taking this thought a little bit further, those who reject the baptism in the Holy Spirit are actually believing and promoting opinions that are 100% contrary to God and His Word. The Lord is the one who made speaking in other tongues the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, not Pentecostals. And He made other tongues to be the undeniable proof that salvation had come to Cornelius and his household. What does it mean when people believe and teach what's contrary to God's Word? This is very serious. It's to say that God is wrong and that their opinions and doctrines are correct. To teach that those who speak in tongues aren't saved and are of the devil, or that miracles aren't for today, are 100% in opposition to what God said, and the account in Acts chapter 10 is clear evidence of this. Actually, such teaching is contrary to the entire book of Acts. So the question needs to be asked, who's right? Is it God or those who are anti-Pentecostal? Is it Peter and the church in Jerusalem or those who reject the baptism in the Holy Spirit is for today and claim that miracles cease with the death of the apostles? As for me, I'm going to side with God since he's always right and we aren't. Besides, I'm a living testimony that the baptism in the Holy Spirit with evidence of speaking in other tongues is alive and well in the church today. Nobody, absolutely nobody, can take this gift from me. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit on the second day of my salvation and immediately began speaking in other tongues, even though I never knew that such a gift existed. My experience doesn't define truth, but it does verify the truth when the truth of God's Word is being revealed in the lives of those who believe. The promise still remains, no matter what people teach. The Spirit baptism is for those who believe of every tribe and nation and people group throughout the church era. I thoroughly believe that God and His Word is true and faithful, always and absolutely. As we turn our attention to verses 24 through 30 of Acts chapter 11, we will see how Dr. Luke makes sure that his readers don't forget about Saul, who we know by his Greek name as Paul. First, let's take a look at Barnabas for a couple of minutes since we barely began looking at him in our last lesson. He was a Levite from Cyprus who had distinguished himself among the believers in Jerusalem as a devoted follower of Jesus who had leadership abilities. News that the Lord began saving Gentiles in Antioch had reached the ears of the leaders in Jerusalem, and to learn the truth of what was happening, they sent Barnabas to investigate. After arriving in Antioch, Barnabas saw clear evidence that Gentiles were being saved, and he rejoiced over the wonderful work that the Lord was doing. When we look at the life of Barnabas, we see that his name perfectly fits him. Barnabas, whose original name was Joseph, was given a new name by the apostles, and we see this in Acts chapter 4, verse 36. His new name means son of encouragement, and this is the testimony of his life. In Acts chapter 13, verse 1, we are told, In the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, and the first name listed is Barnabas, which means that he was the most prominent prophet among them. It's interesting that a more literal rendering of his name would be son of prophecy, and this clearly fits given the verse that I just read. In Acts chapter 14, verse 12, the people of Lystra called Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes after a man who was born crippled was totally healed. This account implies that Barnabas must have presented himself as a commanding noble figure, and so they dubbed him Zeus, which he fully repudiated. I'm not going to give an overview of his missionary work with Paul since it won't be long before we start getting into that portion of Acts. 
We are told in verse 24 that Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. There are four traits about Barnabas that this verse reveals, and they are certainly necessary attributes for anyone who wants to be a minister of the gospel. The first trait is that he was a good man. The scriptures clearly teach that there's no one who is good or does good. We see this in Psalms chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, where David prophesied, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. This is a fact about mankind's spiritual and moral depravity. Paul presses this thought home in a stirring string of verses declaring in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the natural condition of every person. But in Christ, there's forgiveness and full redemption where people are made new through Jesus. Dr. Luke wasn't saying that Barnabas was sinless or without a sin nature. His idea of good in this verse refers to what the Lord grew in him since he had become a follower of Messiah. Barnabas had a godly character that came through the sanctifying work of Holy Spirit. He was a pious and humble man who walked in the love and compassion of Christ. He was fully devoted to the Master's work, faithfully fulfilling God's will for his life and bearing the fruit of the Spirit in abundance. For the leaders in Jerusalem to send Barnabas on such an important mission speaks of how much they thought of his character and spiritual abilities. They knew he was a trustworthy, discerning leader that could rightly evaluate the truth of what was going on in Antioch and then give a faithful report. Yet, as we will shortly see, he was a man who lived and ministered in the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and this is of far greater value to God and his kingdom than mere talent, eloquence, or learning. The second fact about Barnabas is that he was full of the Holy Spirit. This is the same designation that was given to Stephen, the first martyr of the church. Stephen and Barnabas operated in the power of the Holy Spirit because they were both baptized in the Spirit. Since this account of Barnabas comes after Stephen and the conversion of Cornelius, we must apply the same definition of the baptism in the Holy Spirit with speaking in other tongues to Barnabas. Actually, since the definition of being baptized in the Holy Spirit has been clearly laid out for us in God's Word, we should apply the same definition every time the idea is presented in the book of Acts. There aren't multiple definitions of what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, and to do so would be to go against the proper exegetical interpretation of Scripture. As you look at the miracles that take place through Paul and Barnabas, it's only reasonable to assert that the Spirit's power was working through Barnabas and Antioch. The third fact about Barnabas is that he was full of faith, and this is necessary for seeing signs and wonders and saints being baptized in the Holy Spirit. 
If we allocate faith to being necessary only for salvation, then we are willfully missing what the Spirit was doing through faith-filled men in the book of Acts. Listen to what Paul taught in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1-5. through 5. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish, after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Who was God performing the miracles through according to these verses? The Galatians, not the apostles. Paul was talking about the average saints in Galatia that believed the promises of God, were baptized in the Holy Spirit, and were used by the Spirit to perform miracles. Paul didn't give a different definition to the Spirit baptism than what we see in the book of Acts as a whole. The definition remains the same. Those who don't believe in the Spirit baptism normally don't believe in miracles and divine healing, for to do so actually undermines their anti-Pentecostal stance. Barnabas, being a Spirit-filled believer, was seeing God work miracles through him, and this brings us to the fourth point of verse 24, which is that he was a soul winner. The final point of the verse states, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. This point is specifically addressing the personal ministry of Barnabas in Antioch. The greatest miracle of all is salvation. This is where God breaks into the lives of hell-deserving sinners and transforms them from being puppets of demons to becoming adopted children of God. That's radical. Right here is one of the most illogical things about those who claim that the days of miracles is over since salvation is the greatest miracle of all. So, if the days of miracles ended with the death of the apostles, then everyone went to hell since their death. The implications here are terrible, for it means that no one has been saved since the apostle John died, since he was the last of the original apostles to die. Now, if the miracle of salvation is still taking place, I would like to see all the verses people use to determine what miracles God is still performing and which ones he ceased doing. No mere mortal has the right to command God or determine what miracles he does or does not do. Those who refuse to believe that God still does miracles will get exactly what their unbelief produces, which is nothing. But God is still doing miracles because he is immutable, which means that he cannot change. I have seen far too many miracles to doubt that God is still doing them today. Barnabas believed in a God of miracles and saw him perform miracles when he operated through faith. And like I said a moment ago, salvation is the greatest of all miracles. Of course, one miracle isn't any harder for God to do than another since he's omnipotent, which means that he has the infinite power to do anything he wills. To raise a person from spiritual death into new life in Christ is no harder for him than to raise a dead woman to life again like we saw with Peter in Acts chapter 9. What we need is simple, childlike faith to believe the promises of God and crucify once and for all our miserable, terrible unbelief. Coming to verse 25, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When Paul left Damascus because the religious Jews were trying to kill him, we find from this verse that he must have fled to Tarsus, which was his hometown. 
Since Paul was Roman citizen by birth, he had the right to protection, and this may have been enough to stop his persecutors from taking his life in Tarsus. It may also be that he went to his hometown to reach his family and friends with the gospel. There was also a time of training that the Lord was taking Paul through, and this is probably part of what was preparing him for the work that he was called to do. Paul lays out a little of this portion of his personal history in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me, so I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia, and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years... I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him fifteen days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing is no lie. I'm not going to take the time to go over the beginning years of Paul's new faith in Christ as he highlights in these verses. Paul had returned to Tarsus, the place of his birth, and that's where Barnabas found him. It would seem that Barnabas sought after Paul for two reasons. First, it was God's will for Barnabas and Paul to work together in spreading the gospel, so the Spirit directed him to seek after Paul. The second reason may be that the work in Antioch was intense and he needed help. Paul was a man capable of helping with this kind of work, especially since he was called to reach the Gentiles. Verse 26 goes on to say, And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christian first at Antioch. From this verse it appears that Barnabas didn't know where Paul was other than being in Tarsus. We aren't told how Barnabas found Paul, but if he was ministering in that city, it probably didn't take a long time for him to find him. And since both of them were Jews, it would be reasonable to think that his whereabouts would be known by some of them. To travel from Antioch to Tarsus was roughly 150 miles and would take five or six days to travel, depending on walking ability and the condition of the roads. Antioch was the metropolis of Syria and is roughly 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Tarsus is located in what is now south-central Turkey and is located on the Tarsus River, which is about 12 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. The modern city of Tarsus is a prosperous agricultural cotton milling center that has a population of around 250,000 people. Barnabas took Paul back to Antioch where they ministered together for a year. The testimony is that a great number of people came to Christ through their labor. Antioch gained the place in history as the first location where followers of Jesus were called Christians. There's different opinions on how they came to be known as Christians. Some claim they assumed the name, while others think that people of Antioch gave it to them. Then there are those who claim that it was given to them by Saul and Barnabas. No matter how the designation of Christian was attached to the disciples, it was used by God. It seems that most authorities think that the believers didn't give themselves that name, but it came from outside of the church. We know it didn't come from their Jewish antagonists who derogatorily called them Nazarenes or Galileans, so it had to come from the Gentile population. One commentator that's an expert on ancient languages stated that the form of the word Christian shows that it originated with the Romans and not with the Greeks. It was probably not first used as a compliment, but it also doesn't seem to be a name given to the disciples out of contempt either. 
Names like Puritan, Quaker, and Methodist were given in derision of their movements, yet they became names that were respected by many people. The name Christian came about as an acknowledgment of the master or originator of this religious group, and this was common for that time. An example of this is seen in how followers of Plato were called Platonists. We see from this that even the adversaries of the disciples acknowledged that they were followers of Jesus and held to his teaching. This would indicate that they had at least heard something of Christ's teaching and knew it to be noble at the very least, even if they refused to believe that he was the Savior of the world. Unfortunately, the name Christian has lost its power in our day. All kinds of people call themselves Christians that haven't been born again or have any real relationship with God. People are not authentic Christians because they are born into a supposed Christian family, are part of a particular denomination, been baptized as an infant, or are culturally Christian as opposed to being Muslim, Hindu, or Buddhist. When the designation of Christian was first given, it meant something and people knew it. These were authentic followers of Jesus, many of which had been rejected by family and friends or had suffered other kinds of persecution. There was a cost to serving Jesus, and since Paul and Barnabas were the spiritual powerhouses of the day in Antioch, we can rest assured that a Christian was a devoted disciple of Jesus that had been truly born again. We find an interesting account in relation to Barnabas and Paul in verses 27 through 30. During this time, some of the prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up through the Spirit, predicted a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. The time in question was when Barnabas and Paul were ministering together in Antioch. Some prophets from Jerusalem came down to Antioch. Antioch was north of Jerusalem, but since Jerusalem was built on a mountain, any direction people went from the city they referred to as going down. These prophets came from Jerusalem, and the context makes it appear that they were Jewish followers of Messiah. Agabus is also mentioned in Acts chapter 21, verses 10 and 11, where he prophesied that Paul would be delivered into the hands of Gentiles, which came to pass. Those who reject the fivefold ministry are sure to reject that these were literal prophets, so they claim they were only preachers. There's absolutely no way that we can honestly look at the prophecies of Agabus and say that he was only a preacher. He was an authentic prophet whose prophecies came to pass. If a person claims to be a prophet and his prophecies don't come to pass, then he's a false prophet. The ministry of the prophets still exists today. But the modern prophetic movement has so abused the office that it's rejected with greater fervency than it otherwise might have been. I don't want to get off on the good, bad, and ugly of the prophetic movement, and right now I don't see a whole lot of good coming out of it. Paul clearly commanded us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20, Do not despise prophecies, and this is something that I have to take to heart. People despise prophecies for at least two reasons. The first is that they reject the whole idea of prophecy, and the second, they despise prophecies because they have become so abused that they don't want anything to do with them. Because there's abuse doesn't mean that there isn't the real thing. We must reject the counterfeit and embrace the genuine. I have received a couple of words in my life that came from God, and all the rest I put no stock in. If the church disciplined those who claimed to be prophets but only spoke out of self, then a lot of abuse would stop. 
what we can say about the prophets that went to Antioch is that they were the real thing. This is verified by the fact that Barnabas and Paul believed them to have the genuine gift and took an offering for the poor believers in Jerusalem as a result. When Jewish people are converted to Christ, many times they're rejected by their family and left destitute, which created a great need in the church in Jerusalem. The point that a famine was coming meant that those believers would suffer terribly. Some might even die. The compassion of the saints in Antioch, many of which were Gentile, would produce a powerful testimony about the love of Christ working through them. We are told that each person that gave did so according to their ability. They didn't have a set amount to give, but the saints gave according to what they were able, and the Lord received each gift as a love offering that was given to Him. There's a lot of abuse in asking and giving the tithes and offerings in the church today. At the core of giving, or not giving, is the motive of the heart that determines whether the act is accepted by God or rejected by Him. People will give an account to God for how they gave and how they asked people to give. So it would be very wise to make sure that we are doing this with a pure heart before God and according to His will. The King James Version wrote that the famine happened throughout all the world, while the 1984 NIV stated that it would spread over the entire Roman world. The Greek word usually refers to the inhabitable world, which would include the parts of the earth which are cultivated and occupied, and that's why the 1984 NIV inserted Roman to clarify the extent of the famine. Yet there are times when the Greek word only refers to Israel, or a certain nation or given area. It has been suggested that if the famine was going to take place in Antioch, then the saints wouldn't have taken an offering because they would have needed the funds to survive themselves. We are told that this famine happened during the reign of Claudius, who was emperor of Rome. There are at least four documented famines that happened during his reign. The second one happened in Judea and was very severe. This is probably the one Agabus predicted, since the others didn't deeply affect Israel. Two of the famines during Claudius's reign hit the city of Rome itself. One was even deemed as a divine judgment because of its severity. It is said that there were only about two weeks' worth of food left in the city before winter hit. That winter was a mild one, which spared many lives that may have otherwise died due to the famine. Barnabas and Paul took the offering to the elders in Jerusalem. This is the first time the word elder or presbyter is used in relation to the church. In the Jewish synagogue, elders were the officers, but what this means in relation to the church, we don't know. They may have been a sort of pastor for each house church, with James being the head over all the churches in the city. Moving on to chapter 12, we will only have time to introduce the next event Dr. Luke records. Verses 1-3 through three lay out the context. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The time this happened was around the fulfillment of Agabus' prophecy when the famine hit Jerusalem. This was Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great, and the nephew of Herod Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist. Whatever reason initially motivated Herod Agrippa to persecute the church in an effort to drive it out of existence, we aren't told, other than the man was by nature a God-hater. He seized the apostle James, the brother of John, and had him beheaded, and so the number of apostles went down to eleven, and there's absolutely no evidence that there was any succession of their office. 
Because the religious Jews were pleased with Herod having James murdered, he found a way to arrest Peter during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is astounding since there would have been large crowds that traveled to the feast. Verses 4 and 5 read, After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Peter was guarded by four soldiers during each watch of the day and night, which shows that Herod thought he was a very important prisoner. Herod's plan was to try Peter after the large crowds that gathered for Passover had left to reduce the possibility of any disturbance. He wanted to try Peter publicly to make a big show of it and to increase his popularity among the religious elite. The king failed to take into account two very important dynamics in this sham arrest and trial. The first was God, and the second was praying saints. Those together can shake kings and kingdoms, and this is what happened to the man. Thank you for listening to The Radical Truth with your host, Glenn Meldrum. We at In His Presence Ministries pray that this weekly podcast will be a blessing to you. Please tell others about it and subscribe yourself to this free podcast. Don't forget to visit our website at www.ihpministry.com. See you again next time, and may God richly bless you as you seek Him in spirit and in truth. Thirst no more, so come wash in the river, come drink your fill, let healing walk.